0: From my perspective, hope is not a strategy, and it's not always comfortable to think about these things, but I certainly am not saying these things are going to happen to any of our children, but, you know, maybe it's a friend, maybe it's a loved one, and you just never know, you know, what's going to happen or what the future holds.
1: Welcome to Tilt Parenting, a podcast featuring interviews and conversations aimed at inspiring, informing, and supporting parents raising differently wired kids. I'm your host, Debbie Reber. This week's episode is a must listen to if you have a teen, a tween, or will someday have a teen or tween. So yeah, pretty much all parents. My guest is veteran prosecutor for the city of Los Angeles and former troubled teen Jonathan Crystal. Five years ago, Jonathan set out to write the book he needed himself as the father of three teenage boys, and the result is What They Don't Teach Teens, Life Safety Skills for Teens and the Adults Who Care for Them. Drawing on his experience on both sides of teenagehood and the law, Jonathan is on a mission to teach 21st century life skills to young people and their families. I invited Jonathan to the show to talk about these skills and strategies needed for modern adolescents, what they are, and why parents, especially parents of differently wired kids, need to understand the different world their children are growing up in. We talk about interacting with police and personal rights, physical and internet, online safety, street smarts, sexual consent and sextortion, and much more. And we only cover a fraction of what's in the book. So I highly encourage you to check it out. Lastly, I want to give a quick shout out to three new supporters of the podcast. Thank you so much to Pam Crane, Ryan Brown, and Aaron Hill for helping to support the production costs associated with this show. If you get a lot out of this podcast and would like to help me cover the cost of its production, please consider joining my Patreon campaign. On Patreon, you can sign up to make a small monthly contribution to support the show. Just go to patreon.com slash Tilt Parenting to learn more. And now here is my conversation with Jonathan Crystal. Hey, Jonathan, welcome to the podcast.
0: Hey, Debbie, thanks for having me.
1: Of course, I was super intrigued when I got your email telling me about your book and the work that you do. And I have had a couple of conversations, you know, that have talked about safety in a general sense, but I was really intrigued by your book and I just thought this would be a, an interesting topic to bring to my listeners. So as a way of introduction, tell us uh, a little bit about yourself, kind of who you are in the world and your personal why for this work that you're doing.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. So Again, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Um, again, uh, Jonathan Crystal is my name. I live here in Los Angeles, and for the last 20 years or so, I've been a prosecutor for the LA City Attorney's Office. Uh, it was pretty unlikely I'd ever become a lawyer, let alone a prosecutor enforcing the laws, because I used to break a, a few laws as a teenager. I was a troubled teen. I was a good kid. Um, I got pivoted off path at some point at a difficult family situation, and Uh, I started doing things I shouldn't have been doing. I shouldn't have lived through my teen years, but, you know, here I am, thankfully. Um, I'm also trained and certified to teach on sexual violence prevention with a very large, uh, nonprofit here in LA. But I suppose the, the most important thing to know about me is I'm a father to three sons. Uh, my wife, Lisa and I, um, have three boys, all, uh, teenagers and I don't know, about maybe like six or so years ago, uh, Lisa my wife says to me, almost like as an aside, hey, you know it's time we gotta start teaching the, the older boys about um, sexual consent. And I, I, you know, of course it, it was that time and it started me thinking about you know all the other things that that we should be teaching them as, as parents or caregivers. And I actually made a list of, of course sexual consent, you know, their rights with the police. I added you know what to do and not to do when they get stopped by the police when driving their digital footprints, cyberbullying, sextortion, street smarts, dating violence. And I was like, well, there has to be a resource out there. Um, there has to be a book that uh, we as parents and caregivers can you know, just look at and help our, our children learn the information, and there wasn't. And so, um, with the encouragement of my wife, who urged me to write the book I was looking for, I wrote What They Don't Teach Teens, and it came out this past October, October 2020, and Thus far, uh, it's been, you know, very well received.
1: Hmm. Yeah, again, it was just a different topic than I than I've seen. And you really do talk about such important issues, but issues that as a parent can feel overwhelming or super uncomfortable. You know, I've done a couple of episodes on pornography and the importance of talking about pornography. And so we've had a couple of conversations about these issues, but you know, talking about these things and reading your book, it can feel really heavy, right? It can feel scary to read. And just to imagine our teens being in these situations, you know, so I could see there might be resistance. And I'm curious to know around parents who, who don't want to know, or don't want to go there because it feels too heavy, yet we want our kids to be prepared. So I'm just curious how, how do you help parents kind of open up to hearing your message?
0: Well, you know, I'm so glad you've asked me that because um, obviously I've been doing, you know, a fair amount of publicity around the book and events, but I don't think anyone's asked me that yet. And it's a really interesting question. We could probably spend all of our our time trying to just digest that. Um, But it's, you know, there's really two schools of thought. Um, There's, you know, the parents who are really plugged in and totally understand why the issues, in the book, or, or, you know, not, maybe not all of them, maybe they, all, all the topics don't resonate with every parent, but some of them do, you know, for this, at least segment of parents, and they do understand like why their son or daughter has to understand what sexual consent is and what it is not. Um, and the other topics, and then there's others who don't appreciate it and, and that's okay. Um, and generally, uh, they think, that those things happen to, you know, to other people's kids. And, and maybe they're right. Who, who can say? But, you know, uh, from my perspective, hope is not a strategy. And it's not always comfortable to think about these things. But I certainly i am I'm not saying these things are going to happen to any of our children. But, you know, maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's a loved one. And you just never know, you know, what's going to happen or what the future holds. And... The other point I I like to bring up is the information is just interesting. You know, it's good information to have. And uh, as important as math, history, science, those traditional school subjects are, I I mean, I'd like to argue that this is more pertinent and in many ways more important um, because these are life skills that are going to apply in one way or another outside of school. And the last thing I'd say on it is that, you know, one thing I've been hearing continually um, from readers, whether they're teenagers, uh, parents, caregivers, teachers, is that it, it's bringing, and this was my intention, it's bringing them a self- sense of calm because when you have the information and you know the realities of these issues and where, you know, where the risks are and, and where the myths are, it brings you a sense of calm because you know how to handle the unexpected should it happen.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And the subtitle I'll just say for listeners is so the book is what they don't teach teens. The subtitle is life safety skills for teens and the adults who care for them. And so you know, we spend a lot of time talking about life's skills in general and independent skills and what we need to do to get our kids ready for launching. But we don't often talk about these safety skills. And I think you're absolutely right. You know, That knowledge, and you do go into such great detail, like the information on your rights in police interactions was fascinating to me. It's so detailed, and it it is empowering to have a better sense of what are your rights as a person? What can they ask you? What should you do? What are the ramifications of doing X, Y, and Z? I could see how that would give someone a, a sense of at least preparedness, right?
0: For sure. And, and, you know, the the book is really uh, 11 books in one because, you know, there's three sections, as you saw, um, on sexual violence and misconduct, four chapters there, street safety and your rights with the police, three chapters there, and then four chapters on digital safety. And so, you know, you you pick and choose. Maybe you want to read it cover to cover, but I'm finding that most people don't. They pick and choose the chapters that are resonating right then uh, for the, the young person they're caring for. And, you know, you keep it on hand with respect to your rights, um, the hardest part, or not just the rights, every chapter, the hardest part for me writing this book was, you know, keeping it concise. You know, it's harder to write short than it is long. So how do I take, you know, a topic like your rights, and instead of writing a whole book about it, write an effective chapter and make it accessible to anyone who might pick it up, regardless of age. And, And, I appreciate your kind words about that chapter and I think the others are similar because um, there's a lot to cover in a short amount of time uh, or space and I want to give the readers the essentials, the information they just have to have. You, you got to know this stuff and if you want to learn more, go ahead, but here are the essentials. And then you know again, time back to, to your comment about the chapter on your rights. You know, obviously, uh, in light of what's happening, you know, in this country with racial injustice and the criminal justice system and uh, violence uh, that's inflicted on the citizens by uh, or the residents of our country, um, by the police, particularly people of color. I'm glad to see that coming into, you know, the social consciousness, because, you know, I wrote this book over a period of five years and, and I wrote that chapter years ago and I very clearly st- state in there that we need criminal justice reform. I respect police and, and the difficult jobs they're they're doing, but we have entire communities in our country who are afraid of the police, and, and that really has to change. And I, you know, I tried to write the book in a way that was inclusive to everyone or anyone who might pick it up.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I really appreciated that, and and the the mentions that you had in the book about people of color and and specifically what's been going on for a long time, but what we're becoming more uh, aware of as a society. Yep. So, you know, the book was written, you said for teens and the adults who care for them. So I'm curious, how has this been received among teens? Are you finding that teens are curious about this stuff? Are they, are they picking it up and reading it and how, how are they responding?
0: Well, um, You know, it's interesting because that was like one of my greatest challenges. You know, one, obviously, just finding the time between my family life and my professional life to write a book on complicated, nuanced subjects was, you know, no small undertaking. But then who am I writing for? Because I want this to be, you know, accessible to as many people as possible. So what I decided to do is to write the book as if a young person is the reader so uh, essentially any tween, teen, young adult can pick up this book, and I'm using language that they understand. I'm, I'm breaking down sometimes complex topics in very simple terms. And the benefit for the adult reader is that they'll understand it too, and it's an easier read on them. Because the reality is, you know, it's difficult to get young people to read books in in much of the time, you know, everyone's kids are different. And most of the time, it's going to be the parent or caregiver buying the book. And, you know, what I say in the book, and if anyone has the book, it's in Appendix 6, where um, I really convey a number of ways to get this information to the young person you care about. Because again, the parents are probably the ones buying the books And there's a whole bunch of ideas um, I give there. And one of them is, you know, depending on your kid, um, you can give them the book to read, a chapter to read, a portion of a chapter to read, uh, or even a page to read, um, whatever you think is the most important part in a given chapter. And I know for my three sons, they learn very different ways. So one of my sons will not read anything. So... I find other ways. Again, all the the techniques I use are in Appendix 6. Another one of my sons will read an entire chapter. And then uh, my third son will read portions. And so, you know, the feedback I've been getting from, from the young people who are getting it directly from the parent or caregiver or from reading it themselves has been very, very positive. They're finding the information, you know, interesting because it's things they just didn't know but were curious about. And I think they're getting a, a sense of comfort knowing that um, if things happen, the unexpected happens, they'll know how to handle it. But I'll, but I'll say that many of them are saying, you know, I don't think this is going to happen to me, but it may happen to someone I love. And so I'm glad to have that information.
1: Yeah, I, I think it comes across as very empowering. And, it, and it, it isn't talking down. It's presented in a very, I think, teen-friendly way but in a way that engages them, you know, through the design and illustrations. And yeah, it's just broken down in a very digestible way. We'll be right back after this quick break. This year, I've been working on becoming more attuned to my body. And so I'm starting to really recognize how periodic spikes and anxiety or disruptions to my routines can seriously throw my whole system off. And as I've been traveling a ton this past month, which is both disruptive and somewhat stressful, I'm especially glad that I have the extra support of Symbiotic Plus, a three-in-one supplement from Ritual with clinically studied prebiotics, probiotics, and a postbiotic to support a balanced gut microbiome. Symbiotic Plus provides fuel to the cells that make up the gut lining to support a healthy gut barrier. And it comes in this very cool minty delayed release capsule, which was specifically designed to help survive the harsh conditions of the upper GI tract for delivery to the colon. The bonus is that the capsules don't need to be refrigerated, so I can easily bring them with me in my carry-on. On a personal level, I love that Ritual is committed to sustainability. The opportunity to learn directly from authors and experts like I have on this show, monthly themes for getting specific and tactical, an exclusive private podcast feed, and the best, most generous community of parents. Seriously, these folks show up for themselves and each other, and that right there is really everything, because it's a daily reminder that we're not alone. Our kids aren't broken, and we have totally got this. Okay, so I actually, we talked about police interaction. I just wanted to go back to that for a second. And just wondering, this is something that a lot of parents of differently wired kids are concerned about. I know that police forces are getting more training about how to recognize people who may be autistic or have other differences that mean that they are going to respond in ways that may be unpredictable. And I'm just wondering If you have any thoughts on how parents of differently wired kids can best prepare our kids for interacting with the police.
0: Yeah. Again, I'm, I'm really glad you asked me that. Um, there's, there's two police chapters, one on what your rights are under fourth and fifth amendments. You know, do you have to consent to searches? Do you have to answer questions? And there's a, another police chapter on and it's called safer police interactions, what to do and not to do when you get stopped on foot or when driving by the police. And in that latter chapter, I have an entire section, probably four or five pages, that's dedicated to interactions with the police and those who have disabilities. And it's, you know, it's a, a really important part of that chapter because we see, you know, so much about police violence uh, and perhaps the violation of, of the rights of people of color and the poor, but there's not enough discussion or, I think, awareness about the many, many challenges that the police and the people they're policing who have disabilities face during those interactions. And when you talk about violence that is inflicted by the police on the the people they're policing, so much of it, a disproportionate amount, involves people who have disabilities. So it's a huge issue. And one of the things, you know, that's starting to change in some cities and jurisdictions better than others is that the police are getting more training. They, you know, the police are asked to do a whole heck of a lot. And um, despite, you know, some of the things I say, I, I make very clear in the book, at least I think I made very clear, that I am supportive of the police. I have many police officers who I'm close with, and I admire what they're doing. But that doesn't mean things don't need to change. That doesn't mean things don't need to be improved upon. And when it comes to interacting with with folks who are differently wired, there is a lot that needs to be changed. And one of those, again, is there's get there is more training that's being provided. And, you know, one of the things I mentioned in the book, and, you know, there's too much for me to cover just in this moment. But one of the things that parents uh, of children with certain disabilities are doing is they're bringing their children to the police station, they're introducing them to the police. And, you know, it's probably a good idea to call in advance. And they're having their children interface with police officers and perhaps more importantly, having the police officers interface with their children to have an understanding that um, different people uh, need to be policed differently. And the fact that someone isn't responding to their commands in that moment may not mean they're being disobedient or or, or disrespectful of their authority. And so I think it's a two way street that, that um, the teaching with both groups um, so that they can have a mutual understanding of, of, you know, what they're going through and what's expected of them and the challenges that they may be facing.
1: Another chapter that I found particularly interesting was the chapter on street safety, which is, you know, really about street smarts, uh, especially because again, a lot of differently wired kids, they can have challenges when it comes to reading certain situations and, kind of understanding what's really going on, or, you know, they're just not maybe spacing out, so not as plugged in. Can you talk a little bit about that chapter and maybe what some of the biggest considerations are?
0: For sure. And, and, you know, just you bringing that up uh, made me think of a previous question you asked about, you know, what's the response from teens about the book and the chapters? And, and what's interesting is that, you know, the teen's by and large they understand why they have to have sexual consent they may not understand the the, the details and nuances but they get the need they they've had a friend who's been in an abusive relationship and so on and so forth but the one topic that i just think there's a disconnect with them is on street safety they just um you know and i going back i'm 49 i remember obviously as a teen and And many of my friends, we didn't think anything bad was going to happen to us. We didn't think we could get physically hurt. That stuff wouldn't happen to us. And and we all know that's not the case. And and I think, you know, many young people just think they're always going to be physically safe. And and I have to remind my own sons, you know, you're fortunate enough to live in a relatively safe neighborhood. But, you know, anything can happen anywhere. And I don't know where your life travels are going to take you. And obviously, uh, you know, when you're talking about kids who are young people who are differently wired, that that adds a whole other dimension to it. So the most important thing um, in the street safety chapter is situational awareness. There's no uh, more important aspect of personal safety than understanding that. And situational awareness is simply to know what's going on about you As you go about your daily life and you rely um, on your eyes and your ears and your intuition, and practically what that means is, you know, when you're going about your daily life, you periodically get your head out of your phone or just, you know, if you're having a conversation with someone, instead of looking at them, you just look around for for a second, literally just a second and, and see if everything's normal around you. And um, maybe it's just you're buried in your thoughts and you just look around you. Does everything appear normal? And what I always emphasize is that, you know, when people sometimes say that, you know, you're being paranoid, it is not about paranoia at all. You don't expect anything bad to happen because it's very unlikely that anything bad will be happening or anything will be out of sorts around you. But you simply realize that it is a possibility. And the beauty of situational awareness is that it gives you, in the event of a man-made disaster, a natural disaster, it gives you a one- or two-second head start. And in a situation in which you know there's risk of bodily harm, one or two seconds is a very meaningful or can be a very meaningful period of time. So being situational aware is huge, and it's really not hard to do and uh, it's an important life skill.
1: Yeah, for all of us, right? Um, I,
0: Absolutely.
1: Yeah, I, I, I'm just thinking of times that we're walking around, and you know, we live in a in a big city, and walking around, and sometimes coming across some characters that don't particularly feel safe. And so, um, usually when I'm walking with my teen, he's assuming that I'm the one doing all that looking out, right? I'm the one uh, kind of scanning, sure. right? And so I try to even just say like, you know, once we're past that situation, like, did you notice that person? Like, how did that make you feel? It felt a little un, you know, certain to me. That's why we crossed the street or, or whatever.
0: For, that's huge. You know, I'm so glad you said that because I, I feel my sons are doing the exact same thing. We go riding our bikes a lot, particularly, you know, during the, the coronavirus pandemic. And I see like when we're riding, you know, um, across the street at a green light. I'm always looking left, right, left, even when it's green, but they're not. And I say to them, guys, don't rely on me. Don't rely on me to be looking. You guys got to look for yourself. And you talk about, you know, how does that, how did that person make your son feel? And that's such an important question because another part of the street safety chapter is about your intuition and the power of your intuition and your gut instinct when it comes to your personal safety is almost never wrong. And to trust your intuition is so important. And and the problem with that we face when it comes to relying on intuition is that even though it's almost always right when it comes to trying to keep us safe, it's a whisper. It's not always going to be a loud alarm bell. But if we can... Tune in to listen to that whisper about why that person just doesn't make us feel right. And we may not have a, a, a rational explanation. We may not be able to explain it, but we feel it and we know it in our gut. And when we can listen to that little whisper, it can keep us so much safer.
2: Yeah, so good. We'll be right back after this quick break. No one told us the truth about parenthood. Why? Why?
1: So you you talk about cyberbullying and digital safety. Can you talk a little bit about the digital footprint? I just think that this is such an, a critical topic right now, uh, especially as our kids and teens are spending so much more time online. What would you say are the biggest takeaways or maybe the most important lesson when it comes to our kids' digital footprint?
0: Absolutely. Um, what's interesting is that the book came out this past October, October 2020, but it took me five years to write the book. Again, I was juggling a lot, um, but I've been speaking, you know, via Zoom or at schools or in private events, you know, for about five years as people heard about what I was doing. And it's very interesting because the last couple of years leading up to the pandemic, um, you know, I spoke about, you know, sexual violence, misconduct, consent, police interactions and so on. But in the last year or so, um, I'd say 80 percent of my speaking events are on digital safety because you're absolutely right with these people spending more time online than they probably ever have being on lockdown. And they were spending a fair amount of time before. It's so much easier to find yourself you know, doing something that you know maybe you shouldn't have done or being a victim to uh, someone out there who, who's looking to, to cause harm to them. So when it comes to specifically your digital footprint, that's essentially your digital reputation, what you do online from the first time you clicked, what you've liked, what you have shared, and not just on social media, it could be in a text or or, um, in an email, you know, that is, again, your digital reputation. And once you click send or share, there's no getting it back. And it's going to exist somewhere out there longer than we will. And, you know, we have to be incredibly mindful, you know, as adults too, that, you know, we share things that are the best reflection of who we are. And, you know, so much of the time when I see, you know, a young person sharing things that were ill-advised and come back to bite them, it can be because, you know, someone made a mistake, they shared something, you know, they didn't mean to, you know, they, they reshared something that they didn't mean to. But I've got to tell you, more times than not, um, it's because they trusted somebody with information or an image, and that person turned out to be someone, unfortunately, that they couldn't trust, uh, you know, that they didn't know at the time. And so um it's incredibly important for young people to preserve the integrity of their digital footprint to just, you know, first and foremost. Don't ever put anything digitally in writing or in an image that you wouldn't want, you know, your worst enemy to see, that you wouldn't want, you know, your mom or grandma to see. Just don't put it out there. And then once you've taken care of that, that's a huge part of preserving the integrity of your digital footprint to just not push out anything that could make you look bad. But let's be proactive. Let's populate your digital footprint with which things are that are the best reflection of you. And I'm not talking about phony stuff. I'm talking about things that are true to who you are. You know, put things out into your digital footprint that, you know, are positive. You know, an award you received, a recognition, volunteer service, doing something that you love, that you're passionate about. Because it's very likely that sooner or later, either it's a college administrator or a potential employer will be digging into your digital footprint. And yeah, you don't want anything bad in there, but use this as an opportunity to shine, use this as an opportunity to show them what you've got, and why you'd be a great person for that uh, employer or the, the, the college.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and I'll just say as you're, I was just flipping through the book, um, this section as you were talking, and you know, you have a whole chapter on sex torsion, which I I had never heard that term before you know i'm sure that i've seen tv shows where this happened you know fictional characters have um have had someone you know try to extort them or blackmail them because of a compromising photo they have but um again like reading that as a parent is super uncomfortable and it just to me underscores the importance of making sure that we don't miss the opportunity to talk to our kids about this stuff because of the the ramifications could be so huge um, for for something like this happening.
0: Oh, for sure. And and it's interesting you bring that up about sextortion, because um, out of the 11 chapters, uh, titles, the sextortion chapter is easily the one that the fewest people know of. Um, I, I get that all the time, Debbie. Like, I didn't know anything about sextortion. I didn't even know this was a thing. And that that's scary to me because, you know, sextortion, which is online sexual blackmail, um, according to the Department of Justice, is the fastest growing crime online against young people. And the average age of a sextortion victim is 15 years of age. So you're talking about a crime of not only unspeakable brutality, but you're talking about a crime that specifically or or, or most of the time is. Uh, targeting and the victims are young people. And, you know, there's a lot to know about sextortion, but but in a simple way for, for your listeners, the way sextortion happens is commonly um, when a perpetrator, and, and I use that term very broadly right now, gets a nude image of a young person. And it could be a new video uh, or, or a, a compromising image that they just don't, the young person won't want widely disseminated. And the perpetrators are, you know, people online looking to sextort uh, young people. Um, and, you know, that could be from catfishing, which is essentially having a fake online persona where they trick a young person into uh, some sort of online relationship. And then when the young person trusts them online, they, set, they share a nude. And then that nude is used against them. If you don't meet me for sex or send more images or, or send money, I'm going to release that nude to the world and tag all your friends. But the more common way that a perpetrator, at least, you know, sextortion is just starting to get studied by academics. So there's still a lot we need to know. But the early research indicates that the more common way people, young people, are sextorted is through in-person relationships. So the way that would look or sound is they're in an in-person relationship. Things are going well and they decide to share a nude with the partner they trust. Um, they go to break up, and the partner says, "If you break up with me, uh, I'm going to release that nude and tag everyone you know." Or uh, another variation: "If you don't come back to our relationship, I'm going to release your nude and tag uh, everyone we know." And um, again, it's a it's a crime of unspeakable brutality, and it's something that you know you can. There are specific things, and I list them in the book there are ways to um, help protect ourselves from from being targets or victims of sextortion and, um, you know, getting in front of it. uh, And first, of course, knowing it exists is, you know, is the first thing, you know, we should be doing.
1: Mm -hmm. Wow. Such good information. And, you know, I hope listeners are not panicking, but, but just kind of realizing, okay, there, there are some things here that you should be on my radar in order to, to protect our kids. Um, let me ask you, just as a way to wrap up, what is your biggest hope for this book? You know, um, your, your intention for writing it and, and your why came through, but I'm, you know, did you write it with a, a big goal in mind or your ultimate hope for how this would support families?
0: Yeah, you know, um, I wrote it because, you know, as a dad um, and with my experience and training background um I, I was frustrated you know I, I lo- the schools my my sons go to are great schools and the teachers are wonderful you know by and large they they're wonderful um but there's not enough of them there's not enough uh, money for the teachers to have the resources they need there's too many standardized tests and even if they wanted to they can't get to the you know the non-traditional generally speaking the non-traditional school subjects like math history science so I, I wrote the, the resource I was longing for, and I want, you know, I'm not the only parent, obviously, who wants the best for their children. Um, I'm obviously not the only parent who has concerns about, okay, well, I got a new driver. <laughs> Are they going to know what to do and not to do when they get pulled over? Because sooner or later, they're getting pulled over. So um, so I wrote it because I wanted to, you know, help families and it's a passion project. You know, I, 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 I can tell you that there were many times when I was writing it and it was, you know, I, it was my first book and writing a book, as you know, is really, really hard. And um, there were so many times I was like, oh, why am I doing this? This is so much work. I got I got so many other things to do. And I just it was a passion project. I wanted to put something out that didn't exist, that I knew parents would want a new caregivers would want. And really, I want to help young people. Coming of age today is no joke. Coming of age today faces different challenges and, in my opinion, more significant challenges than when I was coming of age. And I wanted to just help ease that transition as best I could.
1: Well, congratulations. Yes, writing a book is is a huge accomplishment and pain in the butt, depending on where you are in the process. (laughs) And um, so congratulations on on this book. And can you let listeners know where they can learn more about you or connect with you if you're on social media?
0: Thank you. Um, Well, my website is whattheydontteachteens.com. My email is jonathan at whattheydontteachteens.com. And the book, What They Don't Teach Teens, is available on Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, or, or anywhere uh they might buy books. Um, I love getting questions on my site, and uh I love hearing from from readers about how the information has has helped them, how it's impacted them. And like I mentioned uh earlier, I, I teach the stuff remotely. Anything in the book I teach at various schools, anywhere. And I'm always happy to get those requests.
1: Awesome. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for doing this important work and for just taking time to share it with us today.
0: Thank you, Debbie. It's been my pleasure. I really appreciate you having me.
1: You've been listening to the Tilt Parenting Podcast. For the show notes for this episode, visit tiltparenting.com slash podcast and search for this conversation. If you like what you heard on today's episode, I would be grateful if you could take a minute to head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a rating or a review. Thank you so much for helping us stay visible so people who would benefit from the show can easily find it. If you want to support the show and help me cover the cost of production, please consider joining my Patreon campaign. To support the show, just visit patreon.com slash tilt Lastly, if you aren't already part of the online community at Tilt, I invite you to sign up at tiltparenting.com on the box in the bottom where it says join the revolution. Every Thursday, I send out a short email with a quick note from me, a link to that week's podcast episode, and links to five stories from the news that week that are relevant to parents like us. Again, you can sign up and learn more about Tilt at www.tiltparenting.com.